Well, hello. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Pints and Parables with the one and only Irishman, Peter Rollins. Yeah. Yeah, you can give it up for Peter Rollins. Yeah. He's poking his wee head through the curtain over there. I'm Tim Burnett. Uh, I am curating this event as well as a new community that is starting here in Santa Barbara called The Way Collective. Yeah, we're a community uh, that is planted out of First Christian Church, uh, Disciples of Christ here in town, but we are a community of shared values and practices and an emphasis there rather than an emphasis on belief. So we are doing things like connecting and contemplating and critical thinking and creating and being compassionate. And that's kind of what we're up to. And we're, we're going to be starting in late uh, summer, early fall. And so I uh, just wanted to tell you a bit about that. But we'll have another event probably midsummer coming up. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But before we get to that event, we've got an event tonight that we are all anticipating. Uh, so I would like to introduce my friend, uh, Peter Rollins, who happens to be an international man of mystery, Irish man of mystery, as well as an author and a speaker and a philosopher, theologian. But many of us are sensing that the religious climate in our country is shifting uh, and shifting in a big way. And so many of us uh, are looking for a new way to engage the evolving faith in our times. And Peter uh, just so happens to be one of my favorite uh, voices in the conversation that is happening today. And he has a way about uh, telling stories and inviting us into a suspended space that pushes us sometimes out of our comfort zones, but also sometimes into a new and more expansive place. And I couldn't be prouder to have him up here uh, with us. So let's give him a round of applause. Welcome him to the stage. So you're all going to die. Um, I hate to be the bearer of bad news because it's, it's like the West Coast and we all try to avoid contemplating such things, but it's, it's inevitable. And uh, that's what tonight's going to be about. Uh, thank you very much for the, uh, the support there, the pyrotechnics, no expense. Um, free drinks for the people who did that all night. This guy's paying. He looks like a friendly guy. Just go to them at the end of the night. He'll, he'll settle you up. Okay, thank you very much. Um, okay, this is Pints and Parables, uh, where I kind of tell some stories and we talk about things. And all the theme of tonight is our end, the last days of our existence. Um, now, there is a beautiful Islamic 
story, and most of you will know this. Some of you will know pretty much everything I'm saying if you've been following my work. I'll try and say some parable that you haven't heard, but I want to start off with a very famous one uh, that's an ancient Islamic tale about death, and it's about this merchant in Baghdad, and the merchant has this servant. Now, the servant is actually from Ireland. Servant went over from Ireland to Baghdad, and he's a guy called Seamus, right? Now, I did embellish this story slightly, but in this story, Seamus is there. Um, So Seamus is working for this merchant in Baghdad, and the merchant says to him, go down into the marketplace and buy some provisions because we're going to have a party tonight. So Seamus goes down, he walks through the markets, he starts to pick stuff up, he sees people, he's talking, and then he brushes past this woman, all dressed in black. She turns to him, she looks him in the eyes, and she points at him with this long, thin finger. And he realizes that she is death. And from the look in her eyes, he knows that she is there for him. So he goes pale as a ghost, immediately runs away, drops all of his stuff and goes back to the merchant. He says to the merchant, I was down getting the provisions for the party and I brushed past death. She looked me in the eyes and I knew she was coming for me. Well, the merchant says to Seamus, listen, Take my fastest horse. If you gallop all night and don't stop once, you might get to the city of Samara by midnight. But don't stop and ride that horse as fast as she will go. So Seamus gets onto the horse and takes off for Samara. The merchant decides to go down into the marketplace and confront death and ask why death would be trying to scare this guy Seamus from Ireland. So he goes down, he's walking through the marketplace and he sees her sitting there in a coffee shop drinking an espresso, just minding her own business. And he goes up to her and he says, what are you doing trying to scare my servant? And death looks at him surprised and says, I wasn't trying to scare your servant. I was just surprised. There he was, shopping, talking to people, taking his time. And I thought to myself, that guy better get his skates on. I have an appointment with him at midnight in Samara. Right? Now, beautiful parable about how you cannot escape death. Whatever you do, death is waiting. But of course, there are people who say that death does not exist. That death is either an illusion or it's something that, you know, is a stepping stone to new life. Now, interestingly, that story is, you know, as popular now as it ever was. But if you want to hear a good sermon about living forever, if you want to hear a good sermon about how you will never die, how you will be able to escape your corroding skin, how you will be able to transcend the earth and fly in the heavens knowing all things, being freed from this mortal coil. You don't go to a Baptist church. Just listen to a TED talk, right? We'll be able to digitally download ourselves. We'll be able to, ultimately, it starts off in a very simple way. 
you are able to or we are able to expand your life by 20 or 30 years. And, you know, some people are saying that that's very possible at this stage. We've done it before, but, you know, we can probably push the lifespan from 80 to maybe 110, right? Now, the idea is if you hit that point when we're able to do that, maybe in the next 30, 40, 50 years, whatever, then, you know, you hit 80. But between 80 and 130, they find a way of extending your life another 30 years, another 40 years, and you basically hit escape velocity, right? Every, you know, they just keep on advancing quicker than you can catch up with death. And then the idea is potentially we, technology will be able to not only transplant various organs or grow various organs, but eventually might be able to get rid of our bodies entirely. Now, it doesn't matter whether all of this stuff is science fiction or science fact. It's just interesting that the secular world is as interest, interested in abandoning death as anyone else. And this is something that you see within popular culture, this idea that death can be abolished, that we can kill death. So whether you believe the sacred version or the secular version, what if it's true? What if there is no death? You know, that we can put that aside, that science can cash the checks that theology wrote. Is that it? Is that the answer? Is that, is that theology or religion over? Well, I would say, actually, it just starts to reveal the real question. It starts to reveal that the real question is not whether there is life after death, but whether there is life before death. That there is a form of death that is within life. That's the existential question. It's also the theological question. The question of, 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 of a type of life that is infused with death. Now, what, what is death? Death, in a nutshell, is a type of nothing that is something. Now, there's two types of nothingness, if you know philosophy. You know, you've got the nothing that is nothing, and you've got the nothing that is something. So, very important, the two types of nothing. Like, you have to get this, right? So, there is, if you have a lack of money, you don't have money. That's nothing. You have a lack. If you have debt, that's a nothingness that is something. The debt binds you to jobs that you hate, to, to institutions that you despise, gives you heart disease, migraines, or whatever, right? Not having money and debt are two types of nothing, but the second is a nothing that is something. Or if you're in a relationship, there's a difference between not speaking and not speaking. Or there's a difference between not eating and eating nothingness itself, and anorexia. Uh, there is a difference between, in Northern Ireland, not talking about your Buddhist neighbours because you just didn't care, and if you're in a Protestant community, not talking about your Catholic neighbours. The, the same not speaking, but has a very different texture. So death is a type of nothingness that is something. You know, there's a nothingness before we were born, but that doesn't worry us. But this nothingness that is something can kind of bother us. So what would it mean to say that death walks with us? I have a little Happy Reaper pin that you'll, I'm actually wearing. And on the back of it, yes, because the Grim Reaper gets a very bad rap. The, re the Reaper is a symbol of, the no of nothingness, you know. So this is a Happy Reaper. And I'll explain why he's a Happy Reaper probably as the night goes on. But on the back of the Happy Reaper pin, there is a parable um, called Footsteps. 
And you probably know it, you know, one night this guy falls into a deep slumber and he sees a beach and he's walking along the beach and he notices that behind him are two sets of footprints. But as he's walking along, he realizes that there are difficult times in his life. And when he has those difficult times, he sees that there is only one set of footprints. So he turns to the person walking beside him who is death and says to death, look, whenever I'm in difficult times, there's only one set of footprints. And death says, ah, it was then that I carried you. Right? So what does that mean, death carrying us? That death walks with us. Well, there's two, two ways I want to look at it tonight. The first is, so if death is a nothingness that is something, in a very real sense, we live between what we would like to have and what we have. And we experience this gap between the two. This is captured beautifully in this little parable from Ireland about this Texan who goes over to Ireland to duck shit. And he's a high-priced lawyer, like very high-priced lawyer, the kind of lawyer you go, how much does it cost for three questions? Guy goes, $1,500. You go, really? Yes. What's your third question? Right? So high-priced lawyer. And he, he's duck hunting. And he shoots a duck. The duck goes into this field. And he's, walking, he's just going over the fence to get to the duck. And this aisle guy is driving along in a tractor. Right? And the aisle guy says, oh, how's it going? And Texan looks at him and says, oh, no, all right, just duck hunting, you know, mind your own business. This guy says, oh, he says, well, well you know, it is my business because that's my field you're about to get into. That would be trespassing. He says, who are you? He says, my name's Seamus, he says. He says, oh, yeah, okay, well, Seamus, he says, I don't know who you think you are, but I'm a high-priced lawyer. I could ruin you. Don't get in my way, right? I'm getting that duck. And Seamus says, okay, he says, I, I don't know about all those high-priced lawyers. I don't know what you learned in your fancy school. But right here, we have a way of resolving conflicts. I don't know if they taught you this in Harvard. It's called a three-kick rule. So what's, what's that? He says, well, he says, I kick you three times, you kick me three times, I kick you three times, you kick me three times. And we go back and forth until someone gives up and then the other person wins. Well, Seamus looks, or the Texan looks at this guy, Seamus. This guy's in his late 60s. This guy's Texan's tough. He's young. Absolutely, I'll take you on. So Seamus gets down off the tractor, limbers up, and then kicks the guy right between the legs, drops him to the ground, and then kicks him in the side, wins him, right? The guy's in the dirt. He's winded. He's sore. But he knows one more kick, and then it's my turn. And then Seamus kicks him again, bam, right in the shin. Ah, right. So then the Texan gets up, dusts himself down. He walks up to Seamus and Seamus says, listen, he says, he says, don't worry about it. He says, sure, you win, you can have the duck, right? Now, <laughs> what's interesting about this story for me is, you know, the, the guy wants the duck so much that he'll go through this stupid ritual right? He wants the duck, he wants the duck, until you take away the prohibition and you can have the duck, and then you realize, what, it's just a duck, right? This, this interesting is what Freud meant when he talked about the pleasure principle and the reality principle. The pleasure principle was simply, you know, you want, you're a kid, you want to climb all the trees, you can. You want to eat all the chocolate, you can. You want to win all the games that you can. 
right? That's the pleasure principle. You just want to do things that you enjoy. The reality principle is your body won't let you climb all the trees you want to climb. Your parents won't let you eat all the chocolate that you want to eat. Uh, your friends won't let you win all the games that you would like to win. That's the reality principle. And we think that if only we could get rid of the reality principle, we would have unbridled pleasure. If only we could get rid of the obstacles to our desire, then everything would be wonderful and we could desire, right? But Freud says, no, 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 no. It's the reality principle that allows you to desire, right? It's the very prohibition, the very thing that gets in the way of what you want makes you want it. There's a beautiful, like very scary horror film from the 1970s that captures this. It's about this kind of psychotic guy. He tortures this kind of like this kid in this massive, der almost derelict building. And there's these other kids on the, in the area. Uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, right? Um, <laughs> It's terrifying. You know, Willy Wonka is obviously the devil, right? Um, he's a psychotic figure, this smiling psychotic figure. And at the very end of this film, you have Charlie who gets to the end and they go into the Wonka Vader together. And then they go up the Wonka Vader, they smash through the glass ceiling. And then in a rare moment of honesty, the devil lets down his guard. And he tells Charlie what's really going on. And he says to Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who got everything he could ever want. And he says it as if it's a warning, because it is a warning. And Charlie says, what happened to him? And then the devil grins and says, he lived happily ever after. Now, why is that so terrifying? Well, in a sense, Willy Wonka is a, is a remake of the 1959 uh, Twilight Zone, which stars Rocky Valentine as this low-level criminal who's robbing a jewellery store. And he gets shot by the police, and he wakes up. And everything is basically the same as when he died. But there's a guy in a white suit standing over him. He says, who are you? My name's Pip. Give me your money points a gun at Pip. Pip says, you can have all the money you want. Here, have my wallet, but I can give you more money than that. Rocky Valentine says, okay, take me to your house. Absolutely, I'll take you to my house, but actually, it's your house. Rocky Valentine's confused, and they go to this house, and it's this beautiful mansion, and they walk in, and Pip says, you can have whatever you want. You want money? How much do you want? A million? Open that drawer. Rocky Valentine opens it. It's a million dollars. He says, I hear you like gambling. Let's go to the casino. So they go to the casino and they start playing and, and Rocky Valentine wins every single time. So Rocky Valentine's beginning to realize that actually something weird's going on. Maybe I've died and this is the afterlife. And Pip is my guide. And sure enough, Pip says, yep, whatever you want. You've had a tough old life, but here you get everything you could possibly want. Well, a few months go by, and Rocky Valentine starts to go mad. He calls up Pip, and he says, Pip, I can't stand it. Every time I go to the casino, I win. And Pip says, well, what percentage would you like to lose? And he's like, no, that's not the point. He says, I don't even think I should be in heaven. And of course, Pip says, whatever gave you the idea that you're in heaven, this is hell. And then there's the laugh, and it comes back, and it says, Rocky Valentine is condemned to live happily ever after. Right. Now, 
The reason for this, this is called melancholy, by the way. Melancholy is getting what you want and no longer wanting it. Depression could be described as not getting what you want. <laughs> and melancholy is getting what you want. And the reason why both of these are terrifying, and Schopenhauer, the philosopher, talks about how we basically are in a pendulum between boredom and need, um, is that the, the psychoanalyst Lacan talked about how the atom of desire can be split. And if we split it, we find two things. We find the object of our desire and the object cause of our desire. So the object of desire is what you want. So say, for example, you're wanting a house. That's the object of desire. You want to buy a house. The object cause of desire is that thing that gets in the way of you buying the house, right? You've got to go through all of the listings. You've got to go through you know, all the rental places, all of that stuff. Look through all of the papers. But the weird thing is that actually when you get the house, you don't really like it anymore. Why is that? Well, from the Lacanian perspective, the object cause of desire is looking for the house. That's what gives you the pleasure of the house. So, you know, you, you think, I'm going to retire with all of this money, then I'll be happy. But you can't because you've got to work hard and you've got to be day in, day out, fighting in the, in the, in the world of work to get there. But that's the object cause of desire. That's the thing that makes you desire it. If you could get everything you wanted, you're robbed of the thing that makes you want it. So melancholy is the horror of getting what you want and depression the horror of not getting it. So either you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Thanks very much. Have a good night. <laughs> I'll take your money and run. Um, yeah. So this is, a, this is a very crazy human dilemma. Um, and I say, so melancholy is getting the object of desire and losing the object cause of desire. And depression is not having the object of desire, but maintaining the object cause of desire. Um, think about it like this is a true story. Some friends of mine, you'll all know this story. It's very common. Uh, I'll call them Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill have been married for 10 years. All the desire has gone out of the relationship. They don't really desire each other anymore. It's all fine, but there's not any sexual chemistry, not any libidinal desire. Anyway, Jack meets this girl, call her Snow White. Ironically, this is their real names. But anyway, so he meets Snow White um, and they, they end up having a brief affair. And, he, and Jack keeps saying to Snow White, we can't be together because I'm married. Been married for 10 years. This is impossible. This is, this is a fantasy. We can't have this. But imagine what it would be like if we could be together, right? Anyway, this is all found out very quickly, uh, you know, almost like unconsciously quickly. And what you see then is Jill is really angry at Jack and Jack feels guilty. Both of them feel the relationship is over, right? So they agree to break up. Jack's moving out of the house. They're sleeping in separate rooms. And Jill wants that. Now, Jack can be with Snow White. They can split up. So if you're an alien from outer space, you would be like, oh, this relationship's over. Jack and Jill, the relationship's broken. Jack's betrayed the trust of Jill. Jill's angry. Jack's guilty, whatever. Um, and now they're going to split up. Jack would be with Snow White. Jill will move on in her own life. But of course that doesn't happen. Very rarely happens. Within a week, Jack and Jill are sleeping together again. They're having sex. They're planning weekends away. The very moment that Jack can be with Snow White, he doesn't want to be with Snow White anymore. That would be the last thing I'd ever want to be, too, be with her. You know, that would be crazy. The very moment 
when Snow White is available, he loses all real desire for her. I mean, there's residual desire, but nothing, nothing intense. This is because for Jack, the object of desire is Snow White, and the object cause of desire is Jill. So you remove the object cause of desire, you no longer desire the object of desire. Interestingly for Jill, the object of desire becomes Jack because the object cause of desire is Snow White. Now that Snow White is taking Jack away from her, her desire is sparked off. So at a conscious level, everybody hates everybody else and they're going to break up. But at an unconscious level, everybody's desire is sparked off and the whole thing continues. And this is the third time it's happened. Right? Um, this, if we had time, if this was more of a philosophical talk, I would kind of get into, you know, why is that? Like, why do we give ourselves over to systems that are damaging to us? But it's partly because what we want is desire. We think we want satisfaction, wholeness, and completeness, but actually what we need is need. We need desire, and this is a way for libidinal desire to flourish again in that relationship. Everybody's hurt. It's damaging everybody, but because desire is sparked off again, they stay together. Now, the problem is it hurts everybody, so how do you do that in a way that doesn't hurt everybody? You're going to have to pay extra for that. Um, anyway, so there is this sense in which we live between what we have and what we'd like to have. You never get what you want, because if you get what you want, you do want it. And if you don't get what you want, you want it. That is living in a lack between what you want and what you have. It's a really difficult human dilemma. Um, and, that, and we live in that lack, that nothingness, that space between. So if I have a relationship with you, I don't just have a relationship with who you are, with you know, what you have. I have a relationship with what you would like to have. Because that enters into the relationship. And you have to navigate that space, which can be called the absurd. The absurd is the space of that in-between. Now, the second way that, that death or nothingness inhabits us is in this annoying space between who we are and who we would like to be. We live in a space between who we are and who we'd like to be. This is called the mirror phase. This is set up. Mirror phase, very simply, is when you're an infant... You are really rubbish. You're falling around. You're weak. Kids, have you seen kids? They're all crap. They're kind of <laughs> no, they're rubbish. They really are. They take something like, I don't know, weeks to walk or something. I don't know. But, you know, um, but like a horse, a pony will walk the first day. You know, a kid takes, you know, I don't know, three days, whatever. But, you know, they're, they're just, they're kind of rubbish. And, and what happens is the kid feels like they can't do anything. They're just floppy. And... And what happens gradually is what, what's called projection. This is a creation theory of subjectivity. Is that In a sense, you're weak and feel a bit rubbish, but you project an ideal. Um, it, it can be into a mirror. This is why it's called the mirror phase. You look at the image of yourself, but it might be your brother or your sister, right? You look out and you go, and your, your parents say, look, look how great your brother is. Look how strong your brother is. Look how you know, independent your sister is, right? Whatever. And they help you project this ideal onto another outside of yourself. And then the second part of projection is the, is the interjection, the bringing that projection back into yourself. Your parents say, that's you. You're just like that. 
either that's you in the mirror, look how strong and beautiful you are, that's you. Or they say, look at your brother, you're just like your brother, you're just like your sister, like, you know. So what happens, by the way, if that second bit doesn't happen, you're probably prone to always idolizing other people. You project your ideals onto another at, at the expense of yourself, right? But if you're able to recouple your ideal image to yourself, then, you know, you're able to say, that's me. And that helps you, you know, it helps you get through difficulties. You're a brave soldier. You're, look how fast you are. Kids are not brave soldiers. They cry when they graze their knees and they're not fast. I could beat any kid in a race, any kid under seven. I, I, in a race, no problems. No, give them a head start. I'll wipe them out, right? And they're not clever. I could beat them in chess any day, right? But we say this. I'd be a good parent. Um, we, we say this stuff and, and it, you know, it's useful. But what happens is you create this ideal image of yourself and you carry it around, but you often don't fit with it. Now, there's a great technology today that shows the mirror phase in action, and it's selfies. You know, selfies. A se and we all know a selfie is never for the self. A selfie is always for another, right? And we can laugh about that. Oh, you're taking selfies, but you're, you're putting them up for other people. But what would be even more weird is if you did take selfies just for yourself, right? That would be truly psychotic, right? You just take selfies, put them in a leather-bound album, and then of a weekend, you sit down in your chair, pour yourself a glass of port, and just look at your selfies, right? That's weird, right? That's weird. Like, what I think is happening in selfies is you're projecting your ideal out, Right? And a selfie doesn't have to include yourself. It can include the car that you'd like to drive or whatever, you know, mountains that you want to climb. But you project an ideal out. And then through the likes and the comments, people, you anchor that ideal image back into yourself. So you look for the likes and you look for the comments because people say, oh, you've got a great life. Look at that. You're brilliant. You're smart. You're this, you're that. And then you're able to try to recouple your anxious broken, kind of crappy self with your ideal self. And, and sometimes we can really imagine, so if you're dressed up and you're going out to a party, but you're feeling anxious and nervous, but you catch yourself in the mirror and you look at yourself, you know, I'm looking good, right? You're, you're kind of then identify with your ideal image and it helps you maybe go through, if you're on a Tinder date or something, you go into the bar, you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, I've got this, I'm looking good, right? But, but in a sense, we can never close that gap. We live between who we'd like to be and who we are. This is just two examples of this, this weird antagonism that's part of life. Living between what we have, what we'd like to have, living between who we are and who we'd like to be. There's a great story in the Bible about this, about Jesus, who I think it's in Matthew, he learns to play golf. And uh, it's, he buys all of the best equipment and he goes out and he's, he's teeing up, he's in Northern Ireland, some best, best golf courses in the world there. He's teeing up. And the disciples are going like, this is just not going to work. It's a disaster. He's using a, an iron. It should, be, it should be a wood. He's using the wrong type of ball. Using, uh, that's basically my golf knowledge used up right, right there. I always feel when I'm doing this, I should have done a bit of research. And then I get like, you know, put, you know what, what do you call it? Like pack this one out a little bit more. But anyway, he's, he's doing it all wrong. And Jesus is like, back off. I'm Jesus. I know what I'm doing. So Jesus hits the ball, but, but he slices it. Goes right into a, a, a pond. Right? And Jesus is like, oh, Jesus. So he's, he walks out, walks on the water, walks on the water, picks the ball up, and walks back and re tees it up. Again, he takes a swing, 
Judas is like, that's not going to work. You know, you've got to work on your stance. Jesus doesn't listen. Hits it again, slices it a second time, goes right into the same pond. Jesus walks on the water to get to, to the bull. Well, at the same time, this old guy's driving along in his tractor, which is weird in a golf course. Anyway, he's driving along and he's, uh, he says, listen, who does that guy think he is? Jesus Christ. And the disciples say, no, that is Jesus Christ. He thinks he's Rory McIlroy, right? Now, in other words, we all have these ideals of who we'd like to live up to. It's part of being human. And the weirdest thing is sometimes our ideal is ourselves. An ideal is, that's why, you know, there, I, I read on Twitter, somebody said, I wish someone looked at me the way Kanye West looks at Kanye West, right? Now, in other words... You know, his, he, 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 I don't know if he is, but could potentially be in love with his own idealized image. But contrast that with actually something Oprah said, which is fascinating. She said, sometimes I need to take the advice of Oprah. In other words, Oprah's realizing that what Oprah Winfrey isn't Oprah Winfrey. There is weirdly in the one person these two things going on. And she sometimes has to take the advice of Oprah Winfrey because she realizes that the, that the one is two, that we are divided internally. So these are two ways in which nothingness hits us. Which brings me to the next parable, which is on a pencil. Now, I am currently between houses, so I would have had lots of these to give out, but I've been between houses for seven months now, basically just crashing on people's sofas because I don't want to pay rent. But um, it means that all of my pencils are in some box somewhere. But this is my parable pencil. And so the rest of the night is going to be based around this. Um, the, the pencil says, never will I die. Never will I die. No, which is fair enough, which is denial. Denial, right? We all want to deny death. And we all want to deny our brokenness, our unraveling, our lack of having what we want, our lack of being who we want to be. That's a form of denial of death, right? Um, now, there's a, there's a story... I like about this, about this, uh, this mystic, this evangelical pastor, and this snake-handling uh, snake you know, preacher who are all going to different events, and they have a massive crash in this, this, this kind of thing. You know, the mystic's on his bicycle, evangelical's on his feet, and I don't know, the snake-handler's in his Hummer or whatever. But they have a big crash, and they all die. And as we know, when you go to heaven, you have to have an interview with Jesus to see if you can get in, right? So they're all waiting at, at the pearly gates, and St. Peter comes out, and he says, okay, uh, you first. So he points to the mystic. He says, go in, have your interview with Jesus. So he goes in and he's in there for a while, uh, you know, half an hour. And he comes out smiling. Oh, I knew I was wrong. I knew I got the whole thing wrong. Right. Next is the evangelical's turn, right? He's done his time in Fuller. He's, he's got his degrees, all of that. He goes in there. He's in there for a couple of hours. Now he comes out distraught after his interview with Jesus. Ah, oh, how could I have been so wrong? How could I have thought I had all of this kneeled down? And he walks on in. And then it's the, this guy, snake handler guy. He gets up, underlined Bible. He goes in. He's in there for about an hour. And then the door swings open and Jesus comes out saying, how could I have been so wrong? Right? Now, <laughs> this is our desire to not acknowledge doubt and unknowing, which is lack, which is a form of death. A form of lack is a lack of knowing, a lack of knowledge, that we're so terrified of that experience. You know, we do want to admit to the doubt or the unknowing. We do want to, we, we want to solidify, we've got all of the answers, we've got the certainty. We want to avoid the difficulty of that unraveling experience. We protect ourselves from it. 
Not only do we protect ourselves from the unraveling of doubt and unknowing, we protect ourselves from any other sense of that lack. The old story about this guy who is on a desert island, stranded, and he's been stranded on his own for 10 years. Nobody else around, just him, just Seamus. This is a different point in his life when he was stranded on a desert island. And eventually, after 10 years of this, some people find him and rescue him. Now, before they take him off the island, they say, listen, you've got to show us how you lived in this place, all on your own, nobody else. Yeah, like, show us where you lived. So Seamus brings him to a clearing. And in the clearing, there are three buildings. Guy says, what's that first building? So that's my house. I built that when I first landed. You know, I just thought I needed somewhere to protect myself from the elements. Oh, very good. What's the building beside it? Well, he says, he says, I'm a very religious man, very religious man. That's my church. I go there every Sunday and I pray. And then I say, okay, well, what's the, what's the third building? He says, I don't want to talk about that. Don't want to talk about that. Come on, what's the third building? Don't want to talk about it. Come on, what's the third building? Oh, he says, that's the church I used to go to. Terrible place, right? <laughs> we, we want to externalize the unknowing and the brokenness onto the other, create a new Eden, have the answers, protect ourselves at all costs. Never will we die, never will we doubt, never will we have unknowing, never will we experience the ghosts that haunt us. But if you keep sharpening the pencil, it says, will I die? Now, will I die is struggle. Denial is never will I die, never will I doubt, never will I question, protect, protect, protect. But the next stage is, will I die? That's the struggle bit. Now, actually, this is not something you do consciously generally. And this is not really a second step. The struggle is in the denial itself. What I mean by that is I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine recently, and she, you know, not interested in any of this stuff, not interested in reading or anything. And she says, listen, I'm a simple soul. And, and, you know, you talk about the difficulties of life and depression and all of these deep things. People like me don't feel depression. People like me don't feel bad. And I just get on with life. And I realized that she thought that depression is subjective, that you know when you're depressed, right? I've said this before, you'll have heard me say this, but like, I'm not trying to make you depressed. People think I'm depressing. I'm not trying to make you depressed. I'm telling you that you already are depressed. You just don't know it, right? Now, the weird thing is we don't realize that. We think depression is something you feel. No, depression is what you protect yourself from. It's what you protect yourself from feeling. You don't know if you're depressed. Your depression is not subjective, it's objective. If I want to know if you're depressed, I don't listen to you. I, I look at your migraines, your fatigue, your inability to sleep, your inability to not party, to not be on your own. The tapping of your finger tells me more than the movement of your lips. Right? Depression is objective, i.e. it's something you can see in the body of the person. In fact, acknowledging subjectively your depression is often one of the first steps in overcoming it. Because I'm not depressed, I go out all the time, I'm always partying. Exactly, that's what you would do if you're depressed, because you can't stand being on your own. Otherwise, you'd realise what's going on in you, that you're a haunted house full of ghosts. Full of ghosts. Those people you've loved and lost, who you've hurt, who have hurt you. You're all haunted houses. You're all full of ghosts. But you push them down, they become poltergeists and they 
break things and give you a hard time, but at least you can deny they're there. But they are there. This is actually, as an aside, one of the weird things I get sometimes. People say, Pete, what do you believe? Right? I had a guy who wanted me on his podcast. I said, Pete, I want to know what you believe. I've read your books. I've heard your stuff, and I still can't figure it out. Right? I'm like, what? I'll tell you what I believe. I believe we don't know what we believe. I believe we are not transparent to ourselves. The last thing we know is what we believe. None of you think a duvet cover will protect you from a knife attack, right? Except if you hear some bump downstairs and then you get all Harry Potter and think that it's going to make you invisible, right? I bet you none of you believe in monsters until you hear something creak under the bed and then you're like, I'm not putting my foot down there because something's going to grab it. I hate to break it to you, but you do believe in ghosts and monsters. You just don't admit it. There's people who hate themselves, but they don't know it. In fact, if you look at their life, you'd think the opposite. They're always out talking to people, always showing off what they have. Reaction formation, where you, you show the opposite of what you feel. Right? You know, I, I, I met a guy, this is a few months ago, in a bar like this, and he was talking to me. He knows I'm a writer and what I do, and he said, oh, I always wanted to be a writer. I'm a speaker. And he says, but, you know, I, I got over that. I don't want that anymore. He says, I'm doing this other stuff. I'm really happy in my marriage, my relationship. Great. Fine. Except he told me six times in the space of half an hour. I'm like, I don't know if you are happy with what you're doing, because if you keep telling me you're happy, like, that's called, that's, well, that's denial. Denial is whenever, right, you, you know, alcoholism. Of course, if you say, are you an alcoholic? The alcoholic says no. But what happens if you're not an alcoholic? You also say no, right? And well, that's what an alcoholic would say. Well, I'm definitely not an alcoholic. Well, that's definitely what an alcoholic would say, right? And you're stuck, you're screwed. But denial doesn't work like that. Denial is when you deny something that you haven't been asked to deny. Oh, you know, there's not much drink here. I'm going to go out and get some more for the party. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic or anything. I never asked if you were. Why are you telling me you're not an alcoholic when I didn't ask if you were an alcoholic? That's denial. You know, and you know, I've used this example before, but like on, on Facebook, if someone's telling you that they're happy all the time, always showing you pictures of how happy they are and how great their relationship is, it's like, oh, I'm really sorry you're so unhappy. Because why else would you be telling me you're happy all the time? If you're genuinely happy, the last thing you're thinking about is posting about how happy you are. Now, of course, we do that sometimes. But if you do it all the time, if you're obsessively showing about how great your life is, that can, you're, not, you're not fooling me. You might be fooling yourself. You're not telling me that you're happy. You might be telling yourself that you're happy. But you don't know it. You don't know you're not. Uh, you know, so not only do we not know what we believe, actually a lot of the challenge of life is to come to know what you believe. There's, I, I, I was on a podcast where the guys were saying, do you believe in God? And I was like, hold on a second, do you believe? Because you told me you don't believe, but you said every time a, a plane rocks, you think, am I going to go to hell? There's people I know who say, I don't believe in, I don't believe in God anymore, but I, I grew up in Florida, I think I'm going to go to hell, right? Because of it, because I've stopped believing in God, I'm going to go to hell, right? Um, or I don't believe in hell, does that mean I'm going to go there? In other words, we are inconsistent with ourselves. Some of us say we believe and we don't. One guy I know, he, he did a thing called atheism for a year, and he said, it's the guy asked me to be in his podcast, actually. And I said to him, come on, be honest with me. Did you do atheism for a year and then become an atheist? Or actually, were you an atheist as a pastor, but you couldn't let yourself know that because your job was involved, because your friendships were involved, because of all that stuff. So you had to create 
a space where you could come to know what you already believed. You could come to believe your beliefs. Like, and he said, yeah. yeah. So a lot of the times, we don't know what we believe. Second of all, you know, you don't have to believe that your beliefs cohere with reality. That's another weird thing that people seem to think is you have beliefs that, that to have a belief means you think it coheres with reality. No, you might believe that your duvet cover makes you invisible to an attacker. doesn't mean that you actually think that that's sensible, right? You can actually disbelieve your beliefs. And thirdly, people think that you want to share your beliefs. Good God, no. <laughs> I do not want you to know what I believe. That's crazy. That's why you have to have grace, a space where you can actually be honest about what you believe so as you can kind of begin to you know, overcome your beliefs. So we, we, we are enigmas to ourselves. It takes a lot of time. That's, only, that's why reality TV works, because no one thinks they're an asshole. I mean, like, you know... Everyone thinks they're cool, and it's only when you have distance from yourself and you see yourself, you go, oh my goodness, am I like that? That's like whenever you read a diary that you wrote two years ago, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm, I, like, was I like that? You need distance from yourself to see yourself. We, th this thing here is designed to protect you from knowing what you believe. That's what this is primarily for. Um, there's a great story about a guy, a king, who comes back to his castle, and he sees a poor man at his gate. He says, get rid of him. You know, excommunicate him from the city, execute him, I don't know, do whatever you have to do. You know that I am such a kind and compassionate man that I cannot bear to look upon such suffering, right? Then you realize, oh, that's me. I love animals, but I, I eat them. You know, I can't really love them that much if I eat them. And also, I know that probably they do terrible. It's not that the cow is going like, I have lived a full life, and now I'm gladly giving myself over so that you can all eat burgers. I think something else is going on back there. But I want to protect myself from knowing myself, so I avoid thinking about that, because I want to maintain the idea that I love animals. You know, there's lots of ways we do this, that we create very elaborate schemes and rituals to protect us from coming to know ourselves. I'm actually a big believer in how do we create rituals and places where we can come to look at what we believe. I think that's actually a good thing. But anyway, um, there's a story I wrote about this. I've written a book of fairy tales. And oh my goodness, I am so sorry. Lock the doors, we're here for another two hours. No, we only have, oh my goodness, time is flowing. Um, I'm going to have to shorten this down. I'm going to tell you this, but because I actually have, I need a volunteer for this. Um, here, take hold of this. Right. Don't screw it up. This is, um, okay, uh, hit forward. Listen, look at that. Honestly, vinyl's back. 35 millimeter slide projectors are also coming back as well. It's, it's, this, is, this is the business, honestly. Joel Osteen, he wants this, right? Now, um, I wrote uh, click forward again and again. Um, so I wrote a book of fairy tales called Enduring Love. And it's called Enduring Love because love is so difficult to endure. And it's set in a forest called the Lonely Forest, which is just actually a stone's throw from the more famous Hundred Acre Wood, but it's a lot less known. And in this, in this forest, there are various creatures who are struggling with love and loss and desire. Uh, hopefully later in the year, this is going to come out. But uh, this one is called The Lake of Truth. And uh, Oh, look at that. We're working well together. And it's about this little field mouse. This field mouse is down in his lock. He's out of a job. This is the recession time, right? He was in the 100-acre wood, but there is just no work out there. He's lost his job. He doesn't have any money. Very down on his luck. 
But anyway, he's looking through the paper and he sees that there are some jobs going in the lonely forest, right? And he thinks to himself, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go. So he fills out an application form, fair enough, does his thing, and he gets an interview. Uh, the, he gets the interview, he gets the job, everything's wonderful. Now, this is a very humble job. It's nothing very fancy, definitely below his skill set. He's, he's basically just putting nuts into, you know, putting the heads on nuts and acorns and that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a what do you call it, like a conveyor belt job, right? But beggars can't be choosers. And he likes it. And he likes the lonely forest. And he makes some friends in his office. And he's got... You know, there's some of his mates, they're having a laugh, right? But also something else happens when he's in the forest. Uh, he meets this guinea pig. And as you can see from the picture, the guinea pig is very beautiful. She's stunning. And this, this you know, like, look at it. He's, he's, he's absolutely, absolutely enchanted with her. And they start to hang out. They start to become friends. They fall in love. Right? And it's, it's very, very beautiful, right? But don't worry, things get dark. So they go for walks, they look at the, the, the stars at night, they kiss, it's all very beautiful. Now, in the forest, interspecies relationships are a little bit frowned upon, but there's these guys, they just put caution to the wind, they don't care, right? But the little mice, the little field mice, is very insecure, right? He doesn't know if she really loves him. And she always asks, do you love me? She always says the same thing. Of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day and I will love you until the day that I die. But he never really believes her. Right? So it, it eats away at him. It eats away at him. In fact, his work starts to fall apart. He can think of nothing else. So one day during a break, the slimy frog who's the foreman says, listen, let's get a cigarette. Let's have a chat. So they have a chat. He says, what's going on? He says, well, you know, I'm in love with this guinea pig, um, but I don't know if she loves me. Have you asked her? Yes, I've asked her. What does she say? She says she loves me. She says she loved me the day she met me. She loves me this very day. She'll love me till the day that I die. But I don't know if it's true. Well, says the frog, deep in the heart of the forest, there is a place called the Lake of Truth. And it is said that if you drink from the lake of truth, you can hear the inner thoughts of the animal you're with. So what you want to do is take her on a walk down to the lake, drink some of the water, and then ask her and see what happens. Ah, <gasps> great idea. So he decides to bring her on a walk that will go right past the lake of truth. Goes past it and he says, oh, you know, I'm very thirsty. I'm just going to take a little drink. So he laps up some of the water and he says to her, do you love me? And she says, of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day. I shall love you until the day that I die. And then he waits. And sure enough, he hears her inner thoughts. Of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day and I shall love you until the day that I die. <gasps> well, he's elated. This is wonderful. They have an amazing day. He, they, they party, they play, they dance. It's wonderful. The people in work are very pleased for him. He tells the slimy frog. They, they drink together. It's wonderful. But then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he stops going to work. Nobody knows where he is. Nobody knows where he's gone. Eventually, he shows up again. Distraught. The slimy frog says, what's wrong? He says, well, turns out the guinea pig was having an affair with another mouse. 
one with a shinier nose and brighter fur than mine? <gasps> what? Well, was it a broken lake, says one. No. Was it a cursed lake, says another. No. Well, was, was it a lying lake? Because it told you that she, she, you know, you heard her inner thoughts. You heard her say she loved you in her inner thoughts. <gasps> what was wrong? And the little field mice says, you just don't get it, do you? She didn't love me. She only thought that she did. See, if I could hear your inner thoughts, wouldn't tell me anything more about your desires than listening to what you say. Because your truth is not in your thoughts. Your truth is in your symptoms. Your truth is spoken in the little actions that you don't even look at. Like whenever I was meeting my housemate for coffee and he gave me the address of the place or he gave me the name of the coffee shop and it was an hour away from where I lived, where we both lived and I drove all the way there. Then I went in and got a coffee and I bought some food and the moment I bought the food and the coffee, I thought to myself, why did he choose a coffee shop an hour away from where we both live? I wonder if there's a coffee shop with the same name that's only five minutes away. Of course there was. I was like, why did I only realize that after I bought the coffee, after I bought the food, after I'd driven all the way there? Do I not want to see him? I thought about it. I said, no, I don't want to see him. There's something, an issue. But I couldn't admit that to myself. The truth wasn't in my mind. The truth was in my actions. I had to look at my actions to know the struggles, to know what was going on. Our truth is somewhere else. So if you keep sharpening this pencil, eventually you get from never will I die to will I die to I die, which is acceptance. Now, there's an old story about Seamus. You'll have heard of Seamus. He was in Baghdad for a while. Um, Seamus had this ritual that every week he would go to this pub and order four pints of Guinness. He'd drink the four pints of Guinness and he'd leave. Did this for years. Well, eventually he walks into the bar and he orders three pints of Guinness. Barman says, listen, Seamus, all these years you've been coming into this bar ordering four pints of Guinness, and tonight you order three pints of Guinness? What's going on? So Seamus says, well, he says, I've got this little ritual. I've got a brother, I've got uh, two brothers, actually, and a father, and they're in different parts of the world. So every week I have a drink from my father and my two brothers and myself. Well, that's beautiful. But he said, yes, but sadly my father passed away. So I still have a drink for the living, my two brothers and myself. So oh, that's very nice, Seamus, very nice. Sorry for your troubles. Anyway, Seamus comes back again and again and again, but eventually he orders two pints of Guinness. The barman says, I don't mean to pry, Seamus, I don't mean to pry, but has something happened to one of your brothers? And Seamus says, no, no, no. He says, no, 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 no. He says, doctor's orders, I've had to stop drinking, right? Now, in other words... <laughs> The truth is not in his mind. The truth is in his actions, right? That's where you want to look. Um, so that's it. So, so the denial of our unraveling is actually often in our symptoms reveal that we're struggling with it. We're, we're, not, we're ignoring it. Like, for example, if someone's really into apologetics, generally they're not certain. They're just hiding their uncertainty. Otherwise, why would you be so into apologetics? I, I was on a radio station where a guy had written 10 books on the subject and had a show three days a week on the subject. He says, are you telling me I should doubt? No, I'm telling you that you're already full of doubt. Otherwise, why would you have written 10 books and have a show three days a week on the subject if you weren't riven by unknowing? If you're certain about what you believe, the last thing you have to do is read Josh McDowell every night, right? Uh, so, 
Um, this reaction formation, again, you don't even know it. You're protecting yourself. But, but the struggle is acknowledged in your library of Josh McDowell books. There's where your truth is, not in your mind, but in your bookshelf. So what does it mean to accept your unraveling, the brokenness, the living in the in-between? What does that mean? Well, I think this actually draws to the heart of, of the Jewish Christian traditions and other religious traditions, is that actually far from thinking that they're there to shore up your certainty. And so, you know, a lot of religion does that, of course, but there are religionless readings or radical readings that say that actually religion can help you actually embrace your doubt, your unknowing, your unraveling, can help you accept and embrace the living in the in-between. That actually you're not unraveling, you're raveling. Now unraveling and raveling mean exactly the same thing. But raveling sounds a lot more positive. There's no negative un on the end of it, you know. When you think you're unraveling, you think you have to do something to stop it. Well, maybe you just have to go, ah, no, I'm not unraveling. I'm, I'm raveling. Let's revel in the raveling. This is wonderful. You don't have to worry about it. The doubt is not something terrifying. It's going to gobble you up. It's actually something that you can embrace that can actually make life exciting. Uh, you know, in the Jewish tradition, you have so many stories about this. I'll just tell you one ancient parable very quickly about a guy, a young guy, arrogant, thinks he knows everything, goes to an old rabbi and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, teach me the wisdom of the divine. The rabbi laughs at him. What age are you? He says, I'm 22. He says, come back to me in 10 years. You're too young. He says, no, 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 test me. I'll show you how good I am. I know Aristotelian logic. I know symbolic logic. I want the knowledge of the divine. I want the Hebrew knowledge. He says, okay, I'll ask you a question. Two guys come down a chimney and at the bottom one has soot on their face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? The guy says, well, the person with the soot on their face. No, 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 says the rabbi. It's the one without the soot on his face because he sees the other person sees soot on that person's face so therefore assumes that he has soot on his face and washes his face. Oh, says the young guy, oh yeah, no, test me again, test me again. He says, okay, another question, a different one. Two guys come down a chimney and at the bottom, one has soot on their face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? The young guy goes, well, the person without the soot in their face because they look at the person with the soot in their face and the rabbi stops him. Stop trying to be clever. He says, the person with the soot in his face, he tastes it in his mouth, he feels it in his eyes, he washes his face. Stupid, go away, go away. The guy says, try me again one more time. He says, okay, one more time. Different question. Two guys come down a chimney. <laughs> I bought him one of soot in the face and one doesn't. Who washes their face? And the guy says, was it my first answer for different reasons? The guy says, no, don't be stupid. They both wash their face. How can you not come down a chimney and not think you've got soot on your face? Now go away and come back in 10 years. Now, what is this weird parable about? Well, it's partly about saying that you're looking for the answer. You can't cope with the debate and the discussion and the argument, but actually you are trying to enter into a discussion and an argument that has been going on for thousands of years before you were born and will be going on for thousands of years after you're dead. And so until you're willing to enter into the fray of discussion and argumentation and find value in that, go away, you're too young. This idea that actually the core of, 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 of the, the liturgical structure of the liturgy is not about shoring ourselves up against our brokenness and our unknowing and our doubt, but about helping us face it, embrace it, and enjoy it. 
you you know some of you will know that I am I one of my most popular like the, the the example of this that I love most is the difference between a sports bar and an Irish pub which is the most Irish analogy you can ever have because both involve drinking right but if you are feeling depressed and and broken and things are difficult you can go to a sports bar go get drunk right listen to Indian music and have Indian conversations because it's so loud you can't hear each other think that's a liturgical structure that you do in order to cope with your suffering and it's fine the problem is it doesn't work the next day your suffering comes back so you have to go back to the bar and get drunk again churches can be like that as well you go get drunk on the sermon and the music and but it and it makes you feel great but then your suffering comes back but in an irish bar it has all the same liturgical technologies but you drink not to get drunk and forget your troubles you drink and you talk about your week right you've got music but the music isn't like superficial and so loud you can't hear yourself think it's some sad irish guy talking about how his one true beloved died of consumption and he'll never love again right <laughs> But by listening to that music, you begin to encounter your own struggles. And that music helps you unlock that in some way, indirectly. And your friends, your, your conversation is not so shallow because you can't hear yourself think. It's actually pretty deep. And where would you rather be at two o'clock in the morning? A sports bar where it smells of vomit and urine, that's just me. And, and, and you feel like if you turned on the lights for two minutes and everyone looked at each other, just for two minutes in silence, everybody would be crying, right? Or in an Irish pub at two o'clock in the morning where all the instruments are out and people are having a laugh and having fun. It's not the point of, you can either run from your suffering or like, you know, wallow in it, light a black candle and sit in the dark with your eyes closed. No, the other step is you create a space in your life where you can encounter your brokenness, your doubts and your unknowing, give space to them. And that is itself this healing process. We all want to get into a type of heaven, escape from the sufferings of life. But what if the radical message is to enter in? This is like, a, you know, a couple more parables and then I'll stop. But the one, one parable from back home that I remember from when I was a kid was about this guy, Irish guy, I won't tell you his name. And uh, he was in the IRA. And the IRA used to have this technique where they would plant an explosive in a building and then they would phone up the authorities and say, you've got five minutes or 10 minutes to get everybody out, right? So anyway, in this story, this guy dies. And he goes up to heaven. He's waiting there at the pearly gates. And St. Peter eventually comes out with a massive, big, dusty book. Sets it down, opens it up, looks in it, doesn't see this guy's name in it. Says, listen, Seamus, your name's not in the book. He says, you're in the IRA, you're not getting in. Seamus says, no, 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 mate, you misunderstand. He says, I'm not trying to get in. You've got five minutes to get out, right? Now... <laughs> That is the radical message that actually the sacred is not some place that we get to that it helps us escape the grit and grime of the world. The real challenge is to find the absolute in the struggles of existence, in life itself, in, in, in this experience of life, in all of its pleasures and difficulties. A good friend of mine, Phil Harrison, who's just published his first book, um, uh, in America and the UK called The First Day. Uh, he, he talked about the day that he gave up religion entirely. And it was a day when he had this weird insight where he's driving from Carrickfergus to Belfast. And he said, I had this like waking dream. And in this waking dream, I died and went to heaven. And I was standing at these oak doors waiting for them to open. And eventually they creaked open. And there was St. Peter, this unshaven, like older face and he says to me Phil come on in 
and Phil's about to step into heaven and he looks behind him and he sees some friends and some strangers. And some are atheists, some are Buddhists, some are God knows what. And he looks at them and he looks at St. Peter and he says, well, what about these guys? And St. Peter says, listen, I'm really sorry, but you know, you know the rules, only the right ones. And so Phil stands there for a moment and he said, all I could think about was my point of reference. This drunkard, this friend of sinners, this, this bastard child, this Christ. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'll stay out here. And he said, and in that waking dream, I swear I could see a crack break across the face of St. Peter. And this voice saying, at last, at last. That actually the refusal to enter in, rather to stay in the world and in life and with people, is actually where the inside is. Strangely, paradoxically, the inside is on the outside. And so to finish off, I will do a last parable. And I know some of you know my work well, so I'm going to tell a parable I haven't told for a while. And I'm going to hopefully, if I forget some of it, you will help me out. Okay, that's the plan, because um, it's, it's one to say I haven't done for a while. And it's about a guy, um, a guy called, what was his name? No, no, it wasn't Seamus. Come on, who was it? It was uh, Rob? Rob, is it, What? Kieran, it was Kieran. There you go. Yeah, you always think it's Seamus. Every story has to be Seamus, 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 Seamus. It was Kieran. Kieran was this guy. He was very happy in his job. You remember the story. He was very content. Yeah, he was making a lot of money. Everything was going great. But he began to get this sense of dis-ease. He got everything he wanted, but it didn't kind of work. And so Kieran thought to himself, you know what? I need to go on a pursuit of meaning. I need to find out what I'm really here to do. I need to find the absolute. And so Kieran decides to do a kind of like a, join a religious group. And he joins the, um, what was it? What does he join? Um, Hare Krishna. Now, it wasn't Hare Krishna's, what was it? Some, some religious group. It was, maybe it was. Hare, yeah, he did do that briefly. He was doing the chants, Hare Rama, Rama, Hare. He did all of that, but he didn't like the vegetarianism. So it wasn't that. It was... What was the religion? What was it? Somebody must have been there. What was that? Scientology. That was it. Thank you. Someone remembers the story. Scientology. Got into L. Ron Hubbard, Xenu, all of that stuff. Got to, got to be clear. Went right up the bridge. Everything was great. Met Tom Cruise. They hung out for a while. Everything was great. He, and, but he got, you know, he got to operating Thetan level seven and, and spent a lot of money doing it. But it didn't satisfy him. Didn't work for him. It's like, this just isn't doing it. This isn't doing it. So he thought, I'm going to do some crazy spiritual practice. And so he took up, um, what was it he took up? Oh, what was it he took up? Crystals. Yes, he got into crystal skulls. Really into crystal skulls. He was like, how do crystal skulls even form? That's crazy. Crystal skulls. He, he had crystal skulls everywhere. Everywhere. He would touch them. He would eat them. He would everything. It wasn't working. And so the crystal skulls wasn't working. So he decided to... Um, coyote? Peyote? I don't even know what peyote is. I'm so on LA. Is that like peyote? Is that like CrossFit or something? Is that peyote or is that hitting the he got in the crossfit I, honestly cross like you know my whole thing about symptoms symptoms are like symptoms t- 
tell you your truth, right? Symptoms are not the problem. Symptoms are the solution to a problem. Like whenever you've got a symptom, like alcoholism isn't the problem, it's the solution to a problem. There's something in your life and that's the way you try to solve it. The solution becomes its own problem. And if you don't work out what the problem is, um, then even if you get rid of the symptom, you'll just pick up another symptom. Because here's the thing, I, I live in LA now, I've seen this happen, right? Someone's drinking too much alcohol and through force of will they stop doing that. They take up something even worse, CrossFit. I've seen it. One day you're drinking too much, the next day you're flipping tires. It's horrific, right? You've got to work out what the symptom's saying rather than just doing crazy. So Pilates, was it Pilates? Oh, I think I, that's like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is not a body that knows about that kind of thing, okay? This is a body that means needs to be fully clothed. This is not, I, even I don't look at myself naked. I shower with, like, with, with clothes on. Um, so yeah, I've never done a Pilates in my life, obviously. So he tries Pilates and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So he, he decides to um, engage in like, you know, find this, the w cleverest, wisest person he can find in order to ask what is the meaning of life? What is the absolute? And so he goes to, um, uh, what was it? who was it? Rob Bell. I can't, you got, you Rob Bell. Yeah, I can't take the piss out of Rob Bell. He's a mate, and my whole career is based on him. If I say anything bad, I'm done. I have to leave the country, honestly. He has pictures of me in compromising positions. It would be an absolute disaster, right? Um, Rob, Rob Bell is like my, I'm the anti-matter to his matter. If you, have you seen Inside Out? Right, I'm, I'm sadness and he's joy and that's why it kind of works together because you know one without the other doesn't really work. But yes, he goes to Rob Bell, he, and I, by the way Rob just told me there that his book is number five in the New York Times bestseller list, so that's very good, congratulations Rob. Um, I, these, these are tears of joy, um, <laughs> tears of joy, it's like, oh Rob, oh, how many am I selling? It's not about the, it's not about the numbers, Rob. I'm very, I'm very happy for you. Very, very happy for you. Oh, is that? Oh, wow, what, wow, that's that's amazing. In the tens, in the tens, Rob. Okay, you know, uh, Gore Vidal says every time a friend succeeds, a part of me dies. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so yes, he goes to Rob and they talk and he talks about surfing and they do some surfing together and Pilates. I'm sure Rob does Pilates. I'm sure he's done that kind of crap before. Um, you know, if you went to the Irish, we just drink. I've never done anything. Like he had me out, honestly, he had me on a surfboard once and I just came out. I went underwater and I came up with basically all the seaweed that was around in the one mile radius. I was like the monster from the Great Lagoon or whatever you call it. It was horrific. So anyway, he goes, he surfs with Rob. It's all great. And then Rob says to him, listen, he says, you know, you think the absolute is at the end of your search. At the end of your struggle, you will find the absolute. But perhaps the absolute is what sparks off the struggle and the desire for the answers. Perhaps the absolute is found in the midst of all of this pursuit that you're doing. Perhaps the sacred is not some object that will satisfy you, make you whole and complete, but rather the sacred is the depth of life that you experience in the act of love itself. Perhaps, just perhaps, in the very struggles of life, there you find the secret.